0: There's a, an old story about the English actor W.C. Fields. He was uh, famous for being a person not only as a comedic actor, but living a bit of a bon vivant way of life. He would uh, had a reputation for drinking a lot, smoking a lot, running after women. And so he was not the kind of person normally thought of as religious. But as the story goes, uh, one day he was in his room, and he was sitting at his desk, and he was reading the Bible. And his friend walks into his room, and he's surprised and says to, to Fields, like what? Why are you reading the Bible? You're not very religious. And Fields responds, well, I'm just looking for loopholes. One of the real temptations when you face tough passages like you did here with Jesus in the gospel is to spend an entire sermon looking at loopholes, right? Well, Jesus doesn't really mean this, and this is how you get out of it and that. But I think many times if we do that, what we ignore is that Jesus says in everything. He says what he says even when it's hard, ultimately because he loves us and he promises to be with us throughout it all. Let's speak to you today from this gospel passage and not trying to water it down and pretend it isn't challenging. It really is. to invite you to cling to Jesus to it, to remember as we're listening to this passage and me talking about it, Jesus loves you. He's not here to condemn you. He came here to save you, to give you life. And when we look at the ways that we've fallen short, that Jesus mentions we shouldn't sh- fall short, the reason we say a confession each time is because God knows we're frail, he knows we're weak, and he knows we can't live up to all we're called to be. So remember, Jesus is walking you through this, even as we hear some difficult things. So what I want to speak to you today, because this is a long passage with a lot of really tough things to chew over, I can't do everything justice, but I'd like to speak to you really about, uh, first of all, the theme of Jesus, what he says last week, as he introduces the, the, the words that he's about to say today. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus, in other words, is saying about all of these things he's about to say, I'm talking to you about the law that God's given. You know the rules, and I didn't come to get rid of the rules. Instead, I came so that you might live up to the whole reason and purpose for which the rules were given. So That's the first thing I want to talk to you about. That Jesus explains the things in the way that he does because he realizes, or he wants us to realize, That God does not want to have simply obedient slaves who cower and obey the rules because they're afraid of punishment. But instead, he says he gives the law and explains the law because what the law is meant to do is to shape us, not into obedient slaves, but into virtuous children. In order to explain what I mean by that, before I get into details, have any of you ever watched on YouTube some of those videos where a person who's got a, a dog or a cat uh, sets up a little nanny cam to watch what their dog or their cat does while they're away at work. And this can be kind of funny because we, if you've got a pet, you probably know the situation. You've trained that little one well enough to know that when you leave something on the counter, some fruit or you forget the bagels on the counter or something, when you're around, the doggy or the kitty does not leap up on there to grab it. They know that they'll get in trouble or they'll get some squirt of water or something in their face. They don't want to do that. And so they're all very happy to obey. But what the nanny cam usually shows is all the stories where the owner goes away, good doggy, and then the nanny cam is on so that the second the door closes, the dog runs, runs, and leaps onto the counter and eats everything that's on there. You know what's happening with that? The dog knows the rules, obeys the rules, but the dog has not internalized the rules because the dog does not really want to obey the rules. It just obeys the rules because it's afraid of the punishment. Sometimes when we look at the Ten Commandments, And other rules God gives us, that's how we approach it. Jesus is talking to the Israelites, saying the same thing. You're approaching it to say, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou won't, you know, uh, swear false oaths and go back on promises. And they're saying, yes, okay, I need to do it. But instead of asking, uh, not just how not to do those things, they should be asking, Jesus says, what is the law for? And how can I become the kind of person who not only obeys the law, but actually fulfills its complete purpose? Now, one of the easiest ways to understand that is is to look at the first part, this part that Jesus speaks about anger, because in many ways, this is really the hardest part of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying and giving us a standard that we can't live up to. And so we ask ourselves, why is Jesus talking about this at all? I'll read to you again about what Jesus says about murder. You've heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be liable to judgment, but I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council, and if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says it's not enough to say, okay, fine, I'm not going to murder. He says you need to think about how you can root out the very root and source that brings about murder sometimes. Now, one of the things that's helpful to understand this is, unfortunately, sometimes when you translate from a an, uh, language and you try to be as expansive as you can, you come up with a way of speaking that sometimes obscures some of the nuances that are there. And what I mean by that is we hear here where Jesus says, um, if you're angry with a brother or sister, in Greek, it would have been just brother. And so the translators rightly want to be inclusive and say, Jesus is speaking to men and women. But what it kind of obscures But I think Jesus is actually not just referring generally about brothers being angry at each other or sisters that angry at each other, but he's hearkening back to an example of where anger led to something far more serious and terrible. He's thinking, I think, about Cain and Abel, two brothers in the first book of the Bible, which is known as Genesis. Let me read to you what it is that happens in Genesis chapter four that helps illustrate why I think Jesus is talking not just about murder, but about anger. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel for his part brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. But Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into the field. And when they were there in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. you notice what happens in this story? Cain and Abel are both bringing an offering to God. And it's not a coincidence to think that Jesus also talks about bringing an offering to God and being reconciled with the person before you bring it. They're both bringing it, and we're not told exactly why, but Abel's sacrifice, God praises, and Cain's, he doesn't. Cain's cheesed off. He's angry. He's frustrated. And then God says, again, if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. It desires for you, but you must master it. He says to Cain something really interesting. You are angry at your brother, and it is about to leap over you and take mastery over you unless you deal with it right now. And Cain refuses to do it and at least unleashes anger and he does something terrible. Do you understand that the the ultimate act of murder stems from the fact that his relationship with his brother was broken by anger? In fact, if you go back a little bit earlier in Genesis, if you know that old familiar story about Adam and Eve and the garden and the snake tempts Eve and, and all of that goes on, it's interesting how it is that all the disasters we see throughout the first chapters of Genesis all start off with a broken relationship may remember the story is how the serpent tempts Eve and says, well, go ahead and eat this fruit, even though God said, don't do it. Eve eats it, gives it to Adam. And then what's the first thing they do? They run and hide from God. And God says to them, uh, when he finds them, he says, why are you hiding? Well, we were naked and ashamed and we hid. The relationship to God is broken. And then uh, uh, they said, well, how did you know you were naked? And God asked them and they said, well, we, we ate the fruit. And God says to Adam, well, why did you eat the fruit? And what's the first thing Adam says? It's her fault. She made me do it. That's the thing Eve does when God says to Eve, well, why did you do it? It's the serpent's fault. What's so interesting about all of this is that they break the relationship to God, then they break the relationship to each other, and then they break the relationship to nature. And the next story that happens after that, It's the story of Cain and Abel where brothers break their relationship and it leads to murder. Later on, we find worse and worse and worse until you finally get to the Tower of Babel where everybody is scattered because they are at war with one another. I think Jesus is mentioning that anger is something to deal with, not just because it might lead to murder, but because it is a sign that something that is deeply broken about the human condition. It is a sign of a broken relationship between us and God and us and each other. Jesus says, when you think about murder, don't just think about violence. Think about how harboring anger in your heart breaks relationship with the people around you, breaks relationship with God, and breaks your relationship with the world. Same thing when it comes to lust. When Jesus says, thou shalt not commit adultery, was told them in the the Ten Commandments, of course, he's right. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is all fine and good to say you aren't actually committing adultery, and yet what happens in your approach to the world and the relationships you have with women in this world if you go through this world always ogling the women in your life and thinking about them and fantasizing about the relationship you can have? with them? Now, he says it to men primarily in this situation, but of course it goes both ways as well. In our culture today, it's a very difficult thing to avoid temptation because even when you're watching network television or you want to listen to the radio, there's uh, hardly a few minutes go by without something super sexy going on, right, or advertisements or no matter what it is. I don't think Jesus here is saying, oh, no, it's never going to happen that you're going to desire another person. But instead, I think what Jesus here is saying is to say when you are lusting after a person, there's a serious problem. And the serious problem is, is that you're looking at that person as a person primarily to satisfy your desires instead of what Christ gives us, ultimately, is the place for what our, our, our sexuality is about. Ultimately, it's meant to be a gift that encourages another person. Think about the difference, for example, when you are to look at something like pornography as opposed to comparing it to your marriage. Pornography is just a wash in our culture, and I think we all know that when you look at pornographic videos or you look at, you know, cam girls or whatever the different things that are out there, what are they asking? you? They're not asking for a relationship that lasts over time. It's not asking you for you to care for this person or to know anything about this person or to love this person. They are simply saying, look at this person as an opportunity for you to satisfy your desires. In marriage, we know, ideally at least, is a situation in which you are married to a person over life What does that do? It means that not only is this a person that I desire sexually, it is also a person I have commitments and responsibilities towards. I have four children. When we uh, have a sexual relationship and children result, one of the things that comes out of that is a recognition that you and I have a joint responsibility to each other and to these children. What do I have in a sexual relationship with a person that I'm married to? I am not only having sex with them and desiring them, I am also living in a relationship which St. Paul tells us it's a relationship that is meant to resemble Christ and his love for the church. If you think about that seriously, ask what Christ's love for the church looked like. It looked like Jesus suffering, Jesus being humiliated, Jesus dying, all for the sake of his disciples, which was the extent of the church at the time. Jesus pours all of these things because he says, I came here to serve. I am doing things not for my own benefit. I'm doing things for yours. And that's what marriage and our sexuality ultimately supposed to be wrapped up in. And Jesus instead is saying, if you go into the world and you say to yourself, well, I haven't physically committed adultery, but I see this world through a prism of my own desires and looking at the people around me only to ask, what can I get from you? You may very well be able to say, I didn't physically commit adultery, but what are you doing? You're not living in a loving relationship with the people around you. Same thing with oath-taking. If you go around and they can't trust your word unless you make a big oath, what exactly are you doing with your relationship? The other thing, though, I think Jesus is saying is not just that I've come to to encourage you to to, to look at the purpose. I've come to fulfill the law, Jesus says. He shows us what that law is like because he doesn't hate, because he doesn't lust after the women that are following him. But I think one of the things he also is doing is recognizing, although Jesus came to fulfill, he also came to help us fulfill the law even though we're not capable of it by ourselves. And Jesus gives us some very important suggestions about how you do this. To go back to that anger situation, look at what Jesus says when Jesus tells us what we are to do when we're angry. Jesus doesn't say, look, here's a meditation technique that will help you chill out a little bit. Or here's a way of sort of spouting off uh, your anger. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that he's saying, do things that reconcile with the people you're angry with. He says, When you are offering a gift to the altar, if you remember your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with them, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge, the judge. But it's to the guard. What does Jesus say when you're angry? You know what you need to be doing? Get at the root of that broken relationship and do what you can to repair it. When Jesus is talking about bringing a sacrifice to the altar, he's probably talking about the temple at Jerusalem. But of course for us in our modern age where we don't have a temple in Jerusalem we go to, what do we do when we come here on Sunday? We come to the altar where Jesus offers his body and blood to us to encourage us, strengthen us, to let us know he's not angry, doesn't hate us, doesn't reject us. He's also saying when you come up on Sunday, there is meant to be a weekly reminder to you about something. To ask yourself, am I living in anger, resentment, lack of forgiveness with people around? And this is a daily or a weekly reality check. To ask yourself, are you dealing with things and nipping them in the bud? Prayer is another opportunity. Sometimes the Bible talks about prayer as a sacrifice of praise. One of the great traditions in the church is in the evening, when you pray before you go to bed to examine your day and think, Am I in enmity with somebody else? Have I had a broken relationship? Is there something I need to make right? How especially true that is for our family. Is there a coworker that I got in an argument with? Am I got in an argument with my husband or my wife? Have I gotten into some trouble with my kids? Ask yourself whether that's the case and deal with it. One of the worst things that can happen in a life to poison relationships is to take the things that are wrong and to stuff them down and instead of dealing with it, it festers and gets worse. Begin to hate a person when in fact a simple conversation could have healed them. Same thing with lust. Jesus says, you know, if you're noticing that there's a problem here, you're noticing because of what you watch or the way you flirt with waitresses or whatever the case is, be honest with yourself about it and nip it in the bud. Maybe this is not a program worth watching, and maybe this uh, is not a way for me to interact, interact with the women in my life. Last thing I wanted to mention here, though, and then I'll talk a little bit about divorce before the end. I mentioned at the beginning about W.C. Fields looking for loopholes. Now, I, I mentioned that at the beginning, and I'm only bringing it back up again after I've told you a little bit about the true force of what's going on here. Because, as I said, we want to look for loopholes. But honestly, there are loopholes. When Jesus talks about anger and never be angry, we also can't help but notice he kicks a bunch of money changers out of the temple later. Or when the Pharisees, uh, are, are are acting rudely and and, and hurting people jesus tears a strip off of them there's another really great time where where the children want to come to jesus to be blessed and and the disciples shoo them away and we're told jesus is indignant with anger let them come to me jesus is angry sometimes and we can easily look at that and say well of course it's all important to be angry at times and that is true Think about injustice, for example, and sometimes you look at a person who is fighting against, you know, racism or something terrible. Anger is maybe the right thing, but I'll tell you, ninety times, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, when we say we're righteous in our anger, we're fooling ourselves. You know, one of the things that happens throughout social media, I notice all the time, is people get on pylons attacking each other, and this person did something wrong, and destroy a person's life. And if you stop and ask them why did you do it, they'll say. Oh, well, because this person deserved it, and I need to strike a blow for justice. But in fact, they're really honest with themselves. They just like the opportunity to beat somebody up. And feeling righteous about it allowed you to do it. Jesus says, don't look for loopholes. Yes, there may be. Yes, there may be sometimes where it's justified. But if you're going around looking for reasons to justify anger, you will find them. And you will find yourself, instead of walking the path Christ gives us, find yourself walking a very wrong path. Choose first not to be angry. And yes, God will let you know when it's time to be angry. That brings me lastly to what Jesus says about divorce. He only says a few short lines here, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time. But I do know that it's one of the things that people choke over most when Jesus says these words, because I think all of us have had our lives touched by divorce, either ourselves or our family. And the last thing I think a divorced person needs to hear when they come to church is, you are bad, you are judged, I understand your situation. Well, in fact, I don't. (laughs) I don't know what it's like to be in a miserable marriage. I don't know what it's like to have a person abandon me. I don't know what it's like to be abused. When you come here and you listen to these words, Jesus is not wagging his finger at divorced people. Jesus instead is speaking to people on how to prevent something that should be prevented as much as we can. Jesus says something instructive when he talks about lust. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Of course, that's hyperbole. Nobody in Christian tradition cuts off their hands because they've done something wrong. But Jesus is underlining how serious this is. He's saying about adultery, something's leading in that direction, it's serious. You should say you'd be willing to do something as painful as chopping off your hand in order to avoid it. I think what Jesus is saying when he talks about divorce in the midst of all of this is he says, apply these principles. Like more important even than when your coworkers deal with anger, deal with resentment, nip it in the bud in your marriage. Deal with lust and temptations and deal with it right away. But I also think when Jesus says that there are times where abuse or abandonment has occurred and in which you have found your hand so infected that it will infect your whole body and threaten your life, it's time to cut it off. And I think that's a good rule of thumb to think about how we deal with marriage. It is a good thing that Jesus says he has given to us, that God has given to us. And if you think about ending it, it may be that you are so miserable and so in danger in your soul or in your physical body that it's time to end, but it's not something to be taken lightly. And I think some of the worry I have is that although there may be occasions where a miserable, miserable relationship needs to come to an end, we've gotten to a point in our society where people don't take their commitments as seriously as they should. But Remember through this, as I say this, and as Jesus has said these things, he knows you. I don't. He knows you in ways better than you know yourself, and he walks with you when you're angry, walks with you when you're distracted by lust, walks with you when you find yourself tempted to go back on promises, and he walks with you in the midst of a difficult marriage, and he walks with you to heal you after a difficult marriage has come to an end. I'm not here to judge, and neither is Jesus. Instead, Jesus is saying, long to do what is right, long to be shaped by God's will, and remember he will be with you throughout it all, loving you, helping you, and eventually shaping you into the virtuous child God wants you to be.